From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this week we're going to be talking about Iowa, inequality, and we'll be hearing again from the nail bar to get a Brooklyn take on Bernie Sanders. My special guest is Bill Janeway, economist and venture capitalist, who explains some of the deep economic and social changes that are driving anger in the United States. He tells us why digital transformation isn't always a recipe for political satisfaction. The technical friction of deploying and consuming these new digital services is zero. The political, cultural, economic friction is not zero. And why the tech revolution may only be just beginning. We have just reached the stage where information and communication technologies, the digital technologies, have sufficiently disappeared to open the door on the one hand for the transformation of work at Walmart and Starbucks, and on the other for Uber and Airbnb. First, for our regular panel, I'm delighted to welcome back Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Aaron Rapport, an expert on American foreign policy, and Finbar Livesey, an expert on public policy. Iowa. So I think we've seen this week that Donald Trump is maybe not as strong as he appeared. Marco Rubio had a good week. Ted Cruz had a good week. Bernie Sanders had a good week. My sense of it, and this is something we touched on in the very first podcast of this series, is that all the focus has been on the crazy Republican race, but actually it doesn't look that crazy. It's playing to type in lots of ways. The evangelical Christian candidate won in Iowa, Cruz, Santorum, Huckabee, that's a pattern. Trump's get out the vote operation was not as strong, and it turns out that you need to get out the vote if you want people to vote for you. The mainstream candidates are sorting, as they do at this stage, so that there is now a clear single individual that if you want to pull somewhere back towards the establishment, not the right the way back, because Rubio is not as mainstream as some, you've got your candidate. The real action is on the Democratic side, because there we're in much more uncharted territory. Bernie Sanders, a socialist, got nearly half of the vote. So Helen, my feeling is, and I don't want to get into the slightly more paranoid edges of this, that the left-wing media focus on the Republicans because they see craziness there and they don't see where maybe some of the more exceptional politics is. But I just think that this is being misrepresented both in the UK and I think from outside America and in America as well. The really interesting story is the Democratic story. I think that that is true to some extent. It's it's interesting for the reasons that you say, and it's interesting because the Democrats' front runner, and Hillary Clinton, after all, is still the front runner, does have the kind of difficulties in regard to her emails that is just unprecedented territory. I think for a lead candidate to be in at this stage, and it could all go horribly wrong. Is that a euphemism for legal legal difficulties? difficulties. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, legal difficulties. I mean, she may have committed a crime. I think you'll be hard-pressed to come to the conclusion that she hasn't committed a crime. That isn't to say that she'll be prosecuted for it. So I think that that's a, a problem for the Democrats, on top of the problem that they've got around the fact that, as you say, nearly 50% of the voters in Iowa voted for Sanders. I think we shouldn't go overboard, though, on this in the electoral aspects of it, in that Iowa, also on the Democrat side, does produce some odd results over the years. And Sanders really has to, I think, produce something in South Carolina for this, in electoral terms, to be a properly con contest between her and Sanders going forward. And Aaron, maybe I've overstated the extent to which the Trump bubble has been burst because he's still probably going to win in New Hampshire. 
Uh, it would, even a few weeks ago, have been quite surprising if he'd won in Iowa, but this is an expectations game. Is Donald Trump over, as I've heard one or two people say, or has this got a long, long way to play? I would go with the latter point. I think this has a long, long way uh, to play out. Uh, I would agree with you that actually in Iowa, the caucus shook out in much the way one might expect. Uh, But now you have a three-way race, more or less, between uh, uh, Trump, who is very well funded, Rubio, who's going to be picking up steam. Uh, And then there is Ted Cruz, who's got quite a lot of cash on hand as well. Uh, So if anybody in the Republican Party was thinking for better or worse that this was going to be decided rather quickly, uh, we no longer see that to be the case. Now, Trump did have uh, certainly a less commanding lead in the polls in Iowa going into the caucus, but a fairly good greater than five point lead. And he wound up losing to Cruz. He's got a much greater lead over John Kasich, I believe, is running second, actually, in New Hampshire. For those of you who can't remember, that's the governor of Ohio. So it'd be very surprising if he lost there. But really, the past year or so has not been the best for polls being predictive of election outcomes. If I were a betting man, I would still have my money on Trump in New Hampshire. uh, But uh, I wouldn't rule out a big, big, big surprise. That was nicely put. The polls have not had a great year. Iowa is famously hard to poll, although I noticed in the run-up to it, people were waiting for the Des Moines Register to deliver its verdict. It turned out they didn't know what was coming either. Is this, do you think, and we're going to come on in a second to analogies with the UK and particularly the Sanders-Corbyn analogy, but do you think that this presidential election is going to play out a bit like the UK general election, which is people are just going to start thinking that the polls are not to be trusted, Finbar? Is this the beginning of a moment when polling starts to be discredited? Well, I think that moment happened a long time ago. And I think that there is some extent to which the polls are less trusted. But I think Iowa can give you quirky results. And funny things are happening in this race, given the way that Trump actually uh, runs his organization, the fact that he preferences big rallies over actually going into the retail politics. So uh, I think a lot of the numbers that you saw in Iowa reflect the dynamics of Trump's operation rather than the polls themselves being massively out of whack with everything that's going on. I think what's really interesting, though, is we have a situation where Hillary Clinton now says she won Iowa. Yeah, she did, but by a tiny, tiny margin. Or a toss of the coin on toss some of the coin. accounts. And that, as you said, that expectations game is now going to play out. And yes, the Democratic race is much more interesting for observers and for us far across the water now that Sanders has actually had such a strong showing in Iowa. But in the Republican side, I think what's going to be interesting as you go through New Hampshire and you see other candidates come up and be second or first or third around Trump and Cruz and Rubio. This is why I think, as Aaron said, you're, going to, you're in for a very long race because nobody stands out yet as being able to really aggregate um, delegates to them and take control. And so my very, very, very far out prediction is that we're still going to be looking for selecting the candidate right down to the convention. I think you're going to get down to a contested convention. And that does mean however much people dislike and distrust the polls, that's good news for the pollsters because they're still going to get commissioned right up to the convention and beyond. I want to come back in a minute to the question of analogies between the US and the UK, and particularly something that we've had some pushback from listeners on, which is, can you really draw comparisons between Corbyn and Sanders? But let's go to the other side of the pond, and let's go really close to home for Bernie Sanders. 
back to the nail bar in Brooklyn and let's hear what the people there think about their hometown candidate. I just feel like Bernie gets it a little bit more. He's he's anti-Wall Street, he's anti-Big Bucks, and that's a lot of the, the people that are funding Hillary's campaign, you know? So I like that he just seems more down to earth. And Bernie has been saying the same stuff now that he's been saying 70 years ago in Vermont. Not 70 years ago, but in the 70s, you know? So his message has been, by and large, consistent throughout his whole political career. What has Bernie Sanders kind of said that, that has, like, really clicked with you? I love that Bernie Sanders is talking about um, economic injustice and um, the issues that are really plaguing the black community. A lot of it is socioeconomic. I like that he's talking about the education system and that, you know, um, schools should not be funded by property taxes in the neighborhood because that affects minorities um, in a negative way uh, disproportionately. I like that Bernie Sanders is talking what he, about prisons, and I love that he's talking about, like, I don't know if he's talking about uh, the deprivatization of jails, but that's also an important thing. Is, wait, is Bernie Sanders from Brooklyn? I think he is from Brooklyn. It's like, he's from Brooklyn and Trump is from Queens? Yeah, yeah. I, I, is Trump from Queens? Yeah, Trump, Trump is from Queens. Uh, I know that. I knew, that's why I hate him. Like, we don't like Queens people in Brooklyn. Excuse me? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, it's just Brooklyn's better. I was born in Flushing. Queens? Yeah. Aw, that's okay, all right. No, it's I not did, your fault, you know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't choose where I was born. Yeah, it's not your fault, sweetie. At least I'm here now. Yes, you're here now. Like, is there, do you see anything, like, uh, reminiscent of Brooklyn politics or whatever in Bernie Sanders? Yeah, well, I love that he's so passionate and that he says things that are unpopular. He said stuff, like, in the 70s. I forgot what video I was watching, but... He was basically talking, he was anti-Wall Street from the beginning and big corporations and a lot of the stuff that he was saying was super unpopular then and he's saying it now. So I think that's a Brooklyn take just to be like, I don't care what you think. I don't care what the popular decision is. I don't care what the status quo says. I'm Bernie from Brooklyn. We out here, best I do or die. Thank you to Galen Druk from Flushing reporting from Brooklyn. So we heard a couple of things there that I think do relate actually to this question about the Sanders-Corbyn comparison saying the same thing since the 1970s. I think that's the case for both of these long-standing politicians. Anti-Wall Street, anti-the City of London. The other thing that really came out from the Iowa caucus is that Sanders has an extraordinary hold over young people. He was polling on different figures around 85% of people aged between 18 and 29 who voted in the Iowa caucus. Now, that's not a lot of people, actually, because the caucus is quite small, and that's a small proportion of the electorate. But that is an incredible figure. And Corbyn was commanding similar levels of support among young people in Britain. This is just a quirk of statistical coincidence. But Sanders polled in Iowa 49.5% of the electorate there. And Jeremy Corbyn, among the members of the Labour Party, not the three pounders who joined, or the affiliated members, but the actual members of the Labour Party, polled 49.5% of the members of the Labour Party. Now, he won easily because he was up against three candidates, not one. But say he'd just been up against Yvette Cooper, who's a kind of the Hillary candidate in our case for lots of reasons. It might have been quite close. So I actually think there are quite a lot of analogies here. But I also know why people say that these people are, these two candidates are very different in lots of different ways. So Helen, take me through this. Same kind of politician or really different kinds of politician? I think they're very different in two important ways and the first of them is that in party politics terms 
Corbyn is an insider and Sanders is an outsider. Sanders wasn't in the Democratic Party in any meaningful sense until 2015. Corbyn represents a particular tendency in the Labour Party that's been there for a long time. At the same time, and I think this connects to that, is, is the Americans are having an election that is in part about the nature of democratic politics and that both on the right, Trump, and then on the left, Sanders, are making critique of the place of money in America's democratic politics. And we're not having that kind of contest in, in Britain at the moment because money just doesn't play the same kind of role in our politics, at least on the surface anyway, as it does in the United States. So Sanders is tapping into a more general frustration that's felt, I think, across the political spectrum in the United States. And Corbyn doesn't have that opportunity in Britain and couldn't do it if it was there, I think. And the second reason why I think it's it's different is is because Corbyn represents something in terms of foreign policy that's essentially a critique of Western foreign policy over the last three or four decades. And, and Sanders doesn't represent that at all. He was an opponent of Iraq, but he's not turning that into a wider critique of the Obama administration's foreign policy, or indeed the Bush administration's past foreign policy in the Middle East, and in the case of Obama's administration, Hillary Clinton's place in it. He might do better if he was more willing to attack Hillary Clinton on foreign policy, but that's not where he's gone. So, Aaron, Sanders is in many ways more of a domestic-oriented candidate. And though Corbyn, I think it's fair to say, some of his foreign policy positions are the things that probably make him unelectable in a general election in this country, nonetheless, he is, as Helen said, associated with certain kinds of critiques. And I think the broad term for him is he's an anti-imperialist, and that means that includes the British Empire. I mean, he's talking about negotiating a deal with Argentina over the Falklands and so on. I mean, this is strange and somewhat dangerous territory for the leader of one of the main parties in Britain. What I don't know about, I'm sure to the young people who vote for them, they both look like old men, and they're just assumed to be, they must be kind of the same age. They're a bit different, actually. Sanders is older. And I take it that Sanders comes out of the anti-Vietnam War generation. That's his kind of political formation. And Corbyn was probably on the fringes of that too. But actually, I think Corbyn's formation is more 1970s, and Sanders is more 1960s. To Americans, does Sanders have that feel to him? Does he feel like he's a product of that kind of generation of anti-war, but a war that's long ago and long forgotten? To a certain extent, yes. I'll give you one example from popular culture. The American comedy show, sketch comedy show Saturday Night Live had a feature in which the uh, actress playing Hillary Clinton referred to Bernie Sanders as a human Birkenstock. So that is clearly a reference uh, to the 1960s, to the anti-war, anti-Vietnam flower child kind of era. The interesting thing to pick up on what Helen was saying in regards to foreign policy is Bernie Sanders at the moment is kind of hard to pin down on foreign policy, which is not to say that he's being slippery about it, but he is so domestically oriented that it is very hard to critique him one way or another because it's very amorphous. So I was on his website the other day, and even sections that refer to foreign policies are largely about domestic policy. He will quote Dwight Eisenhower comment about the dangers of the military-industrial complex and saying that every dollar spent on bombs and tanks and guns is a dollar that can't be spent on clothing uh, the uh, cold or feeding the hungry. And Hillary Clinton has actually been the one who's been on the offensive in terms of foreign policy. She's tried to portray uh, Sanders as looking weak on Iran, saying that he's naive, right, and that he would normalize relations with the Iranian Republic. Um, But again, there's not that much daylight between the two as far as 
their support for the nuclear deal is concerned. Sanders is going to be a little bit vulnerable in terms of critiques that uh, when he got married, he was considering honeymooning in the Soviet Union and uh, things of, of this nature. Um, it doesn't sound like an ideal honeymoon location to me simply weather-wise. As of yet, perhaps the biggest critique of Sanders on foreign policy is that he's got to look like he gives a darn about it. Fimba, there are other, I think, obvious disanalogies here. Guns is not going to be a huge issue in British politics. Uh, the race question and the question of Hillary Clinton, particularly her support, which we're probably going to see in future primaries among black voters, um, is something that doesn't really come across to British politics in the same way. And then there's one other issue here, which is on the thing that does, in a sense, unite Sanders and Corbyn, which is their critique of finance and f- finance capitalism, they'd probably both call it. There is a kind of bridge between Sanders and the Democratic Party, a semi-mainstream figure, which is Elizabeth Warren, who has in some ways blazed a trail here. Whereas with Corbyn, there's a gulf, really. There is the mainstream of the Labour Party, and then there is the group around Corbyn. And there isn't really a figure who somehow bridges that divide. I mean, maybe Hillary Benn, but he doesn't have, certainly he doesn't have that kind of economic aspect to his kind of politics. Is that a big difference, actually, between the two? Um, Well, in Corbyn's case, I think he's trying to fix this um, through John McDonnell and bringing in a number of high quality economists of a particular flavour and doing a big tour around economic issues and trying to put forward a new version of economics. And these economists, we should say, include... Piketty, the world's most famous economist. Mariana Mazzucato, uh, Stiglitz has been hanging around a little bit. Uh, You know, there are some heavy hitters in here. And so there's an attempt to make a bridge to some version of an alternative. But that's not to say that to bridge back into the city and high finance and all those other pieces, which we would talk about. I, I think you're right in the sense that Elizabeth Warren is a stepping stone back into the mainstream of both the Democratic Party and this conversation. But I think that actually highlights another issue for the Democratic race, which was it's now a, a two-person race. It was a three-person race until O'Malley decided, you know, that low polling was time to close so, the door. So it was a 2.1-person exactly. race, and now it's a two-person race. And Elizabeth Warren essentially was waved off, as were others. Deval Patrick was waved off. You know, don't, don't do this. We don't want you in the race. So I think that's a big difference. For me, one huge difference between Corbyn and Sanders is that, to me, Corbyn is accidental and Sanders is intentional. Saunders wanted this conversation. He wanted to make change. And at the end, from some of the reporting inside his camp, he said, the only way I get to make this conversation mainstream and the only way I get to be taken seriously is by running for president. Corbyn has fallen into the leadership, and I think it shows. One last quick point on this, Helen. Something else we've had pushback on from engaged listeners, and I should say we really welcome this, is that maybe it's also a tiny bit lazy just to use the word populist to describe a whole range of candidates from Donald Trump, Nigel Farage, through to Sanders and Corbyn, because actually they are very, very different kinds of candidates leading very different kinds of movements. Do you think we should avoid the word populist and find another word? It's hard to know what the other word would be, but are we, are we, should we have a little moratorium on populism? I think that it's very problematic to use the word populist if you look at the way that the word's been used historically, not least in relationship to the United States, and that what is happening this time it's difficult to see goes the way of earlier so-called populist revolt. So if you go back to the big one in the United States in the 1890s, it's absorbed in the end by the Democratic Party. 
it's incredibly difficult to see how the Democratic Party absorbs the agenda of Sanders. It's even more difficult to see how the Republican Party absorbs the agenda of Trump or what Trump is stirring up. And I also think that because you've got these two things simultaneously going on on the left and the right, that that is not a parallel that we can find before in terms of these populist revolts. They come from one side or another at different times. It seems to me that it's much more a reaction against oligarchic politics. So if you want a phrase, I'd say anti-oligarchic politics. It's not a very fluent phrase, but I think that there's something more interesting and deeper going on than can be captured by just saying there's a populist revolt going on. Aaron, are you happy with the anti-oligarchic politics banner for the crowds to march under? Or is there anything better? I think we should maybe uh, hire some marketing folks and see if they can come up with a better phrase. But I actually agree that uh, being anti-oligarchy is not equivalent to also being a populist. An analogy might be, if you go all the way back to the 1860s in the United States, uh, being anti-slavery didn't also mean that you were an abolitionist. In terms of whether any of the candidates are true populists or not, um, I think it's fair to say that Trump is truly running on a kind of white nationalist populist platform uh, in which big government is okay as long as it goes to the majority ethnic group and not people who are framed as outsiders. But at the same time, uh, one has to remember that regardless of what these people run as, populists, anti-oligarchs, they're going to have a big job in front of them if they want to create some change because as recent political, recent political science research has shown, in many ways the United States has become something of an oligarchy as represented by the fact that the top 1% of people's political preferences do a much better job predicting the way votes turn out in Congress than the next lower 90%, in fact, which have really almost no relationship whatsoever. So this is much more than just a campaigning issue. It's much more than one woman or one man. You might have to think about the macro politics of uh, the American system as it currently stands. That's a great way into my conversation now with Bill Janeway. You're listening to Election the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Bill Janeway is the author of Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, one of the very best books about the long and complicated history of the relationship between technology revolutions, political power and money. As well as writing about it, he actually does it himself. He's a very successful venture capitalist and high-tech investor. We spoke on the morning after the Iowa caucus. I started by asking him whether we'd seen this kind of thing before. Well, we've certainly seen political expression of extreme frustration on the part of people who feel excluded. Certainly the Granger movement of farmers bitterly resentful of the monopolistic power of the railroads that were literally driving them off the farms that's one, obviously, during the Great Depression, from Father Coughlin to Huey Long to Townsend, the original innovative architect of the American version of Social Security. Those populist waves were animated by direct economic loss. And here, you know, it is the case that in the U.S., generally, even though the employment to population ratio remains disappointingly low, the U.S. has probably had the best recovery from the global financial crisis of any member of the OECD. There's something that clearly needs to be thought 
out that is not about narrow economics, something that may have to do with the perception, as Trump most particularly has articulated, of a sense of America isn't great anymore, frustration in the international domain. And then the second is the highly differential impact of the second stage of the digital revolution. And I say second because it's only now that the digital technologies have sufficiently disappeared the way that electricity disappeared between World War I and World War II, that the most imaginative application of those technologies can be deployed. And the impact of those is, is, is very differentially distributed. We're going to come on to jobs and also digital revolution in a bit. But just to pick up on the point that the previous populist waves were motivated by real loss and living really risky and dangerous lives. This one is sometimes described as a breaking wave after a long period of stagnation, particularly of wages and wage levels among the middle class. So it's not the same kind of moment of fear. It's more of a slow burning, slow build of anger as well as fear. Is, is there something in that? Is this different, but it has some motivation that clearly can be linked to long-term economic problems? I think it does have some of that of a, of a long stagnation, but I think there are a couple of other things going on. And it goes back to the different distributions of economic and political power. The economic recovery of late and the fruits of the digital revolution uh, have been captured to an extraordinary extent by a very small number of people, who in turn, not all, but many of whom, have deployed the economic power they have in a political way that does go beyond, I think it's fair to say, anything that we have seen since the Civil War because of the Supreme Court's role in opening up the political process to the direct intervention of money. This goes back to the Supreme Court Buckley decision, which said a rich person could spend any amount of money. Money is speech. And then through, of course, the Citizens United case, where corporations, the notion of corporation as a person is extended to the rights and privileges of the First Amendment. I find this development of constitutional doctrine to be sufficiently beyond the scope of outrage because it certainly represents as radical a break with original intent as it is possible to find in the history of American constitutional jurisprudence. In North Carolina, new legislation passed over the veto of the governor by the state legislature makes it a felony for any individual to be a whistleblower with respect to his or her employer. It's, That's not the democratic will of the people. That is not the democratic will of the people. I mean, this is really a quite remarkable development. There was much debate back in 2008 about what's the matter with Kansas? Why don't the people of Kansas get it? One thread is that there certainly has been an enormous effort to generate false consciousness <laughs> among the American populace. But there's another issue. You know, um, in Britain, they say sooner or later, when you dig down, you're always going to find out that it's about class. And in the U.S., 
we do tend to find out that when you dig down far enough, an awful lot of it is about race. One source has been a sense amongst a significant minority, but not trivial minority, that it is profoundly illegitimate for a black man to be president of the United States. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So if we take those various elements, we've got economic causes of this anger. We've got a latent or more explicit now racism. Some of that itself cuts across some of these foreign policy questions directly, not the racism as such, but the anger that comes out of a sense of betrayal there. Just to go back a little bit to what you said earlier about false consciousness and the way that the political system is now vulnerable to money, the symbols of inequality are, in many respects, Silicon Valley and the young entrepreneurs who have made untold billions. They're not the ones, I think, who are primarily injecting money into the system, though they're doing a bit more of it. In some ways, the poster grandparents of that are the Koch brothers, who are old-fashioned industrialists. I mean, they're, they're familiar fingers from the earlier century. So we've also got a slight tension there between the symbols of inequality. And just to add one more thing, which is there's been some really interesting work done recently about politics in Silicon Valley, this assumption that these new tech uh, billionaires are all libertarians and anti-state. They're actually not. A lot of them are liberal by American standards. They're kind of Democrats of a kind. They're, they're into efficiency rather than ideology. So there is that tension between the symbols of this inequality and actually the people who are using their money for power. Well, or is that, am I misreading that? Well, I think the, the, the new billionaires uh, cover a very broad spectrum from Peter Thiel to Eric Schmidt, who's not so young. And many of them grew up professionally with a very narrow worldview and have gone in different ways as they've kind of uh, grown out of the, uh, the engineer's mindset. But I think the digital aspect of what we've been talking about cuts through in a different way, at a different source. And, and by the way, I do think some of the new digital billionaires are indeed progressive-minded and are funders of progressive causes, some social like uh, gay rights and some economic like increased minimum wage. Where I would go here is to this uh, remarkable set of talks, papers that my friend Tim O'Reilly has been generating on what he calls the the WTF economy, by which he means, what's the future? What's the future of work? And Tim makes a very important point about the differential impact of digital technology on the economy of employment. So much of that focus has been on Uber and Airbnb and the gig economy and everyone an entrepreneur and manage your career as if you were in startup mode. And curate your life. That's right. And this kind of romantic vision, which does come out of the Bay Area, that cuts right against what in fact 
has been the far more widespread and profound impact of digital technology. And that's on the ability to run large-scale businesses on zero-hour contracts. I can call an Uber, at least in New York. Not in Cambridge, we should have. Uh, not in not Cambridge. Yet. But Starbucks can call someone to be at work with just as much efficiency. The technical friction of deploying and consuming these new digital services is zero. The political, cultural, economic friction is not zero, as Uber and Airbnb have discovered. When the service descends from the digital domain to the world of atoms and people, they become an on-demand source of supply. So to link this to the question of the anger that is visible in politics, it is the case, as you said, that the American recovery has been strong by many conventional measures, not least the unemployment rate. A lot of people have left the labor force altogether, but the unemployment rate is back down to historically respectable levels. That does not seem to have assuaged the anger. So is the shift that we're actually seeing in the nature of work and in the nature of jobs? So there are these jobs, there are more of them, but to have one of those jobs does not give you either the security or the kind of sense of satisfaction that in the past meant that the job-creating party and president would reap the rewards. And in good part because having one job isn't enough. You better have two. Now, I do find it interesting, back to Iowa for a moment, because you have these populist uh, expressions have come into radically different modes. The political symbol of the Trump candidacy is one finger up one finger up from a privately owned 757 with the name Trump, of course, emblazoned on it in gold. So it's a displacement, if you like, uh, psychologically to I'm losers, but I can be with a winner. Now, there's a long phenomenon of that. It's, It's the poor shop girl dreaming in front of the photographs of the movie stars in 1920s, 1930s, this identification with someone so much larger than life, willing to tell the truth, nobody can control him, nobody can constrain him. I don't think that has the legs that get anywhere near the White House, but it certainly is a way of acting out. So just like Trump acts out, it gives people who are frustrated and angry the chance to act out. Well, it has to be said that when they hear people like you say that, they get even angrier. They get even, they get outraged, of course. they could put that on the record. Uh, David, you could not be... You're right as rain. I interrupted you. Now on to Bernie. (laughs) On to Bernie. Now, the great thing about Bernie is that Bernie has been saying exactly the same thing for 40 years. And now young people are listening nationally. Uh, And the notion that the term democratic socialism is not a... uh, radical turnoff. No, it's not a deal breaker. It's anymore. not. Well, it, it, there's a constituency. You get that, in the conversation that is, saying that. That's correct. Now, how Saunders' populist expression translates itself through this campaign and more broadly, I think we are seeing some responses already. I've been surprised at the breadth of the minimum wage movement. That is a pragmatic response. The source of populist anger in the structure of work that I think may have great legs. Now, there's something here that is probably not obvious, but may I uh, make a pitch for a colleague of ours, 
Professor Gary Gerstel published a book last year called Liberty and Coercion. It's an extraordinary work because it calls as the central issue of American political history the rooted constitutional conflict between two very different theories of government and two very different structures of political institutions. State governments that inherit the essentially inherently limitless, quote, police power, unquote, of the British sovereign, and a federal national government with enumerated powers, limited, constrained, and rendered inefficient by its very construction in the Constitution, and which has only been able to respond to national crises to extend its reach virtually by subterfuge with very few constitutional amendments along the way to legitimize in the mode that the Constitution set out to be legitimized. And often needing war to often give it needing the, war. the crucial impetus. Quite. Today, when we're talking about the political response to the economics of inequality, the economics of rage, it is very much to the states in the first instance that we perhaps should focus. And that's where minimum wage legislation, for example, can emerge. And one can find perhaps patterns emerging from the bottom up. So could it be that our fixation, because particularly from the outside, American politics means presidential politics, and this election is a fantastic yeah. show. It's the best democratic show on earth for good reasons and bad reasons. Are we looking in the wrong place for change? Yes, is the short answer. I never forget a story that I heard when I was a little boy about uh, Harry Truman turning over the White House to Dwight Eisenhower in 1953 and saying, poor Ike, commander-in-chief of the armies, he's used to pushing buttons and things happen, and he's going to get here and say that nothing he does makes any difference. <laughs> so that's one, that's, that's, that, 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 that's one response. But the other, the other takes us right back to Polanyi, to the intersection of the distribution of economic and financial power and the distribution of political power. Because beginning in the late 80s, 90s, big right-wing money focused on the states, on winning and building political power at the state legislature as well as the governor, the gubernatorial level. For me, in fact, the single greatest failing of Obama as president was not to take the 2010 midterm election seriously. Because that Tea Party sweep, when the Health Care Act was completely misrepresented, when, of course, that wave of racism emerged, was the moment at which the potential for a transformational presidency was eliminated definitively. The extent to which the authority of governing takes place at the state and local level, the ability to control the districting of congressional districts, which has been in the hands of Republicans in 40 states since 2010, and in most of those states where they have what we call in America the political trifecta, the governor's mansion, plus both houses of the state legislature. They get to redraw the rules and exactly the boundaries right. of the district. Exactly right. And 
going back to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has uh, ruled in one case, I'm sorry, it's, it's coming up before the court, before the court. Constitution says that the districts shall be distributed and defined by state legislatures. In a few states, in very few states, the state legislature has outsourced that responsibility to a nonpartisan commission. That nonpartisan commission is being attacked as being unconstitutional because it prevents gerrymandering. Attacked on highly partisan grounds. Exactly. I mean, it is, we discussed this a bit a couple of weeks ago, seen again from the outside. The thing that makes American democracy unique is just how much control the states have over everything, including national elections. I think in every other major democracy, national elections are in the hands of national well, rule makers, and that is not the case here. And it does produce these extraordinary ingrained now partisan divisions because you get control of the levers of power and you can pull them your way. Right. Now, I, I have always had an extreme immune reaction to the notion of counterfactual history, but I have to say that what you just said makes one think about the extraordinary consequences of the 2000 election in the northeastern part of Florida and the consequences for the world that resulted from the fact that the winner of the majority vote in that election never became President Albert Gore. I'm going to pick up on two things that we've touched on now for final two questions I want to put to you. So the first relates to what you were saying earlier about Sanders and the thing that is most striking that has come out of Iowa just last night, which is the hold he has over young people. So he was polling in the 18 to 29 bracket at well over 80%. Hillary has got none of them. And you see some of it in this country too, which leads one to suspect that the big divide in politics now is demographic, or it's increasingly demographic. People often say these things, and then it sort of doesn't quite pan out, because as these generations move through, they don't quite retain the same character. But there does seem to be, I mean, it's a very striking phenomenon that this very old man, I don't think he'd mind me saying that, who's been saying the same things for 40 plus years, is striking a chord with people who are brand new to politics and grew up in an entirely digital world. I take it this is not a coincidence. I think that's right, but uh, let's just stipulate both in the U.S. and the U.K. that the um, the numbers in absolute terms we're talking about of young voters in the state of Iowa, as well as the dues-paying members of the Labour Party supporting Jeremy Corbyn, are both very small numbers. We'll see and we'll how this how they turn out when the votes need to be counted in the election that matters. That's right, but I do think that what Trump and Saunders, I think, share is the perception, correct, that they're prepared to say things that were not only not politically correct, they were beyond the bounds of political discourse. They are prepared to speak their minds. What else is adolescence about? (laughs) Except acting it out as well. The last thing I want to ask you about, and this is to really broaden it out, the question of jobs and the changing nature of both labor and the labor force at the moment is feeding into a wider discussion, some of it apocalyptic, some of it interesting, some of it trying to downplay the significance of this, that artificial intelligence, or is it sometimes put robots, are coming to take our jobs. Of course, they're not coming to take our jobs because if robots do them, they're no longer jobs. They're just tasks that are being performed. But you know, the more garish warnings say that 
a whole swathe of middle class, particularly middle class or low middle class, um, white collar employment is about to be wiped out in the next 20 years. And this could profoundly change politics and the way people relate socially. And tech people are talking about it, but politicians aren't talking about it. And they maybe they think it's angry now. They should see what it will be like in 20 years. Is Are you on the side of the people who want to downplay this? Or do you think we really should start thinking seriously about this being just the beginning, not the crest of a wave of anger, but the beginning of something that's going to build and build? I think that is a very broad question. I think that goes in multiple directions. Okay. So one direction is machines replacing people with jobs. Well, I'm old enough to remember the panic over automation in the 1950s. The creative destruction of jobs driven by technology is not a new phenomenon. What really matters, though, is the political response to it. It's is this a functional political economy where the political process exists precisely for those who lose in the market economy to have, if you like, a court of appeal, a process of response. I am not concerned that we're going to run out of work for people to do. And a lot of that work is going to be collaborative work with increasingly, quote, intelligent machines, because we still do an awful lot that machines are just terrible at. But there's another issue here that this discussion addresses and is kind of uh, in conflict with. There's the alternative vision of great economic historian, uh, Robert Gordon, that technology-driven growth is over and that the digital revolution is a damp squib compared with the two great industrial revolutions before it, the age of steam and railroads and the age of electricity and chemicals. And there, I uh, would just make one small, but I think really important point. And that is that each of those first two industrial revolutions, as laid out by Gordon, took at least 100 years for the economic consequences to be realized. And it goes with the historical fact that it took 50 years for the underlying transformational technologies to be reduced to such standard low cost that they could be deployed as networks, new architecture, the railways, electricity grids. It was only after that first 50 years that the killer applications were identified and deployed. In the case of railroads in America, it was mail-order retail. It created the national economy. In 1880, every town in America had a shoemaker. In 1920, all the shoes in America were made in Brockton, Massachusetts. But it took 100 years from when the construction of the Baltimore and Ohio Railway began. So my point, we're 50 years from the microprocessor. We're 50 years from the microprocessor. We have just reached the stage where information and communication technologies, the digital technologies, have sufficiently disappeared to open the door on the one hand for the transformation of work at Walmart and Starbucks and on the other for Uber and Airbnb. The one thing we know we know, as Keynes would have pointed out, is that we don't know what the economic consequences of these will be. All we do know is that it's not over. It's not remotely over. We're just at the halfway stage. Thank you to Bill Janeway 
And now back to our panel. The question of tech titans and their enormous wealth has reared its head in British politics in the last week or so with the question of Google's tax bill. George Osborne has had to row back on his claims that getting Google to pay £130 million of tax over 10 years was a triumph, given that represents about 3% of their total revenues over that time. It's not a lot of money. And if George Osborne thought this was the way to make the issue go away, it doesn't seem to have worked. It's given it legs. But I think there is still a question, and this comes out of some of the things I was talking to Bill Janeway about. Does this really have political legs? I mean, can we see the question of corporation tax? And in the British context, some people, including the former Chancellor Nigel Lawson, have weighed in on this question, and he has come out on the record and said, it's time to completely change the corporate tax system. Is corporation tax, that kind of anger against the money that corporations make, going to become a live issue in British politics over the next cycle or two? Or is this just another passing fad or scandal? Let's start with Finbar. Is this is this really going to energise British politics? I think it could. I think it's one of those issues that is clear enough. It can be told in a simple story. The corporations make a lot of money and they don't pay their tax. You're paying your tax. You're working hard. So I think it lends itself to the kinds of attacks that you would want to use. The problem is, once you get into the detail, this is ridiculously complicated. It is difficult at the domestic level. It's incredibly difficult at the international level. And actually then getting beyond, as you say, just a conversation which starts a different kind of politics or starts some version of a conversation between the left and the right in a country like the UK, how do you actually then make some progress? And that's where it'll hit the wall. I think it will animate a discussion. And unless there can be progress, it will then fizzle. We will in a few weeks when we come to talk about the Irish elections actually come on to one aspect of this because Ireland in these stories is often portrayed as the bad guy because Ireland is often where these, particularly the tech corporations have their headquarters and the tax rates there make a big difference to what they're able to do in the UK. So we're going to get into some of that detail. We're not going to do that now. Erin, just in a more broad sense, these villains need to be personified. So part of the problem in the long history of corporations and their role in politics is that they are these rather amorphous entities. It's quite hard to pin down who is responsible. But when there is a very, very wealthy individual, and in the case of Google, a couple of them, Facebook won. Is this actually, to go back to our earlier conversation, just part of this kind of anti-oligarchic politics? It's not that people are really minding about the tax structure of corporate earnings and corporate power. They're really annoyed about one or two people becoming fabulously wealthy. Do you think it's actually anti the individuals, not anti the corporations? I don't know if I'd characterize it as anti-individuals versus anti-corporations. I think I might characterize it, and this is picking up a little bit about what Finbar was talking about, about people being uh, emotionally engaged with the idea of injustice versus their ability to be engaged with the nitty-gritty, incredibly complex, concrete details of how you go about sorting through this policy. So it's a little bit of a difference between an emotional response and an analytical response. And I think the very tricky thing to do is to get constituencies, broad constituencies engaged with this issue in the long term. And it's hard again, because uh, as we know from political theory, whenever it comes to political lobbying, when you're talking about rich corporations, the costs and benefits of tax policy are concentrated on them, whereas they're kind of diffused throughout the rest of society. So how much do I benefit if tax policy changes uh, to favor the less wealthy versus somebody who stands to pick up or lose millions and millions of pounds? Somebody else has uh, arguably more skin in the game, even if they represent a much 
much smaller percentage of the voting constituency in the population. Helen, the other thing that clearly applies here is the point that Aaron made about lobbying. I mean, corporations, that's one of the things they're good at. Um, it's one of the things that they do. It's much more visible in the American case that the lobbying industry is just right on the surface of American politics. There is a significant lobbying industry in this country, but it is somewhat more buried. But I don't think we can think that the, the arrangement between George Osborne and Google happened independent of some lobbying activities on the side of the corporate power in this case. Could this bring more to the surface or could anything be done to bring more to the surface the role of money and lobbying power in British politics? Because that is a big part of this story. I entirely agree. And I think in many ways, actually, the most interesting thing politically in the whole episode was the tweets that Rupert Murdoch made uh, and basically saying two things, that Cameron and Osborne were too posh in order to get anything out of um, Google, that they were not confrontational enough with them. And then saying that basically Google have their people in um, American government, they have it in, in British government. And if you look at the revolving door in and out of British government and Google, it is quite terrifying. And I think that anybody who thinks that that doesn't have something to do with why Google um, has um, paying as little tax as it is now done, is being rather politically naive. And very quickly, finally, Finbar, could Jeremy Corbyn be the person? I don't think Rupert Murdoch is going to be tweeting that Jeremy Corbyn is sufficiently unposh to take on Silicon Valley. I don't think he's going to be tweeting that. Um, but I mean, this is clearly a big part of what Corbyn stands for. It's to get a fairer tax system. Is there any possibility, I've been talking about him being broadly unelectable, but is there any possibility that actually this could really have legs for the Labour Party? I think the difference you have to make is legs for the Labour Party versus legs for Corbyn. I think Corbyn is not the person who can take this forward. He's too much, forgive me for saying, professorial tweed jacket, small meetings. He isn't the person who can go into that room and be that confrontational. However, the rest of the Labour Party should be taking this issue up and they should be making it a central plank for what they're trying to do because that will lead them to the next place they need to be, potentially post-Corbyn. Thank you to Helen, Aaron and Finbar. To our special guest, Bill Janeway, to Galen Druk for his reporting from New York, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Next week, I'll be talking to the other Donald, Dame Athene Donald, about women in science and science in politics. We'll also be catching up with the news from New Hampshire. Do please join us then, and do visit our website at Polis Election Podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast, Election. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.